0: I'd like for you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. I decided that I spent more time with my glasses off than on, so I would just leave them in my office this morning. And uh, that means that you're a little fuzzy the one thing i didn't count on in the eight o'clock service i didn't have my podium here and and, and my arms aren't long enough i have to get my bible away from me in order to be able to read it (laughs) but after we're done with that we can move along romans chapter three verses one through eight then what advantage has the jew or what is the benefit of circumcision great in every respect first of all that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy words, and mightest prevail when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of god what shall we say the god who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous is he i'm speaking in human terms may it never be how for otherwise how will god judge the world but if through my lie the truth of god abounded to his glory why am i also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. This is a strange passage of scripture. It asks all kinds of convoluted questions, at least it appears to. And so before we get into it this morning, I want to give you a little bit of a survey, a landmark, so you know where we are in the process of Paul's discussion on the subject of sin. Because if you understand where he's been and where he's headed, then you'll know why he asks these questions where he does. First of all, we began back in chapter 1, Verse 18, talking about all people being under sin. And we named uh, a, a number of different kinds of people. Most of chapter 1 deals with what we call pagans. Now, it sounds like a, a, a very derogatory term. It's just really a descriptive noun. People who have no religion, well, at least no kind of godly religion, no no biblical judeo-christian heritage Um, they might be worshiping rocks and stones they might be worshiping other kinds of idols and doing all kinds of weird things but they're largely without instruction without the knowledge of at least the law as a revelation like the law of Moses and Paul explains to us that they're without excuse because they know in their heart what's written in the law even if they don't have the tablets themselves people pretty much universally know it's wrong to lie it's wrong to steal they have some kinds of covenants of marriage and they know that uh, living outside those covenants is inappropriate they have all of these kinds of instinctive kinds of regulations and paul says they prove that the law of god is written inside of here and if that's not enough, he says, by the way, God reveals it to them. So all pagans are under sin, and they're lost in their sin. Then Paul, in chapter 2, moves us into the consideration of moral and ethical people who have some semblance of ethical, maybe, shall we say, Judeo-Christian morality, he wouldn't have expressed it in that those terms, but that's kind of what we might say. They may not be Jews, they may not be Christians, but they have kind of a moral perspective, a higher ethical value. There were Roman philosophers in Paul's own day that had those kind of aspirations to have a little higher kind of life, not just to live like a bunch of animals in the streets. And they urged their fellow citizens to adopt a a more stoic or a more um, ethical kind of lifestyle. Paul says, what about them? Well, they also need a Savior. Because even though they have a seemingly higher standard, the truth is they routinely violate their own rules and show that they're still sinners. And then finally, Paul comes down to the question of the Jew, and he says, what about the Jew? The Jews have special revelation God gave Moses ten commandments and tablets of stone on top of the mountain, and he came down with them. And the Jews have this great heritage of Abraham and and uh, and Moses and King David and the the whole history of Israel and the laws of God. And what about them? And he says they too are lost in sin. They need a Savior. He's about to summarize all of this teaching for us in verses 9 through 20 of chapter 3, when he sums it all up that all the world is under sin and lost without Christ. But before he does that, he raises these questions that are before us this morning. And with those things in mind, they're actually very good questions. Remember that Paul is writing to the church in Rome that consists of both Jewish converts and Gentile converts. And the Jews have always thought they were special. And about this time in the reading of this letter, they're asking... Well, what good is it to be a Jew? If if it gives me no special stature with God, if, if it's not going to guarantee my salvation, if all those laws I've been following all my life don't do any good, what's the point? And Paul says, I want to talk to you for a minute. You who are Jews, I want to tell you what the point is. He says, you have every advantage. First of all, he said, you are God's chosen people. Now, whenever god well let me back up god chose israel and don't blame them because if you you read their history it looks a lot like our history okay but god chose the jews and they thought he chose them because they were such wonderful people god must think i'm really great because he picked me (laughs) that's not what happened They became special because God picked them, not because they were special. They became special because God picked them, and he picked them for a purpose. Way back when, when God said to Abraham, who was living in Ur of the Chaldees at the time, and he was a businessman, and he had herds and flocks, and he had uh, all kinds of property and whatever, and God came to Abraham, and he says, Abraham... I want you to get up out of Ur of the Chaldees where you've been living. I want you to take your immediate family. I want you to take your your stuff. I want you to sell off your business. I want you to liquidate your your assets that you can't move. I want you to sell out. I want you to go to a place that I'm going to show you. And I'm going to make out of you a great nation. Abraham was not a Jew at the time. Nobody ever heard of a Jew at the time. Abraham was not a Jew. He He was a Chaldean. And, and we don't even know what kind of relationship Abraham had with God before this proclamation came. But when it came, Abraham responded in faith. He sold everything off, he packed up his goods, and he left town. You know, and you can imagine his servants saying, where are we going? he's, I don't know, God just told me to move, he didn't tell me where. Well, how are we going to know what to do? You just have to trust God. He was the first man that expressed that kind of faith. And as he moved along, God began to unfold a little bit of the plan. He says, I'm going to make a special people out of you. I'm going to give you a child, a child of promise. I'm going to, through you and through him, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. And it was like, wow. Wow. But you see, God picked Abraham to prepare us for the coming of Jesus. And his point was to prepare a people through whom he could reveal the unfolding plan of salvation, to whom he could uh, express his character, and who would be a testimony to the rest of the world. They weren't supposed to be this goody-two-shoes little clan that hung off to themselves and you know, they were supposed to be a light, a beacon. And as time went along, Abraham's children, as you know, Israel, ended up in the land of Egypt. And it wasn't long before Moses shows up on the scene, and they have the exodus, and they go out to the wilderness. And, and now God is ready for phase two. He's got this big nation. Started out with Abraham, now he's got this big nation. Approximately two million strong, scholars tell us. And they leave Egypt and they head out to the wilderness. And on the mountain of Sinai, God gives to Moses the Ten Commandments. You know what he was doing? He was saying, this is what kind of God I am. He was revealing his character. He was showing his nature. And all the other laws and all the other rules, you say, what was all that about? It was to make that people stand out. As different not because they were superheroes of the human race but because God had chosen them to reveal through them his character his personality his nature his holiness he gave them the law so that the world could understand what kind of a God he is and also through them To show us how far we fall short. The whole purpose of the law, and we're going to get into this in detail later on in chapter 7, but the main purpose of the law is to show us our sin. Because before God could send a Savior, he had to explain our need. I mean, if you sent Jesus into the world about 15 minutes after Abraham left Ur, no one would have understood the point. But now that God has revealed the law, and, and the whole history of Israel is this sad story of wandering away from God, here and there and yon, and God saying to them, you know, what you need is a changed heart. He said, you, you need a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. One day I'm going to put my spirit in you, and I'm going to fix this wandering tendency of yours. I'm going to change your heart. And, and, and I'm going to bring you back to myself. And all of that was preparing for Jesus. And then finally Jesus comes. And, and not only has the whole history of Israel demonstrated the character of God, but now here is God in living flesh. You don't have to read about him. You don't have to hear about him in the synagogue. You can watch him. You can see him. You, you, can, you can look at him. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. Look at me and you see God. I'm just about as real of a definition as you'll ever find. He that has seen me has seen the Father. Wow. And you people need a Savior. And just as God had prophesied, they killed him for it. The sinless Son of God... The spotless Lamb who died in our place on the cross. And, and, and salvation was was brought to human beings. And Paul says, You Jews, this is your heritage. Don't think I'm downplaying that significance. But you need to realize you're not special because you're so good. You still need a savior. You're special because God picked you as the people through whom He was going to demonstrate all of this mighty love and power and glory. You're special because God chose you. And you are the vehicle, you are the means by which He has shown His character and nature and ultimately brought a Savior into the world. So He says, don't downplay your your heritage, there's great advantage. So that's the first question he answers. What good is it to be a Jew? Well, you've had the wonderful heritage of being God's people, of having God's law, of seeing God's nature up close and personal. You have been blessed, but you still need a Savior. Now, the next questions, or the next questions that Paul begins to answer, are of a little different nature. And they go kind of like this. Okay, Paul, we're all in the same soup. (laughs) Jews, moral people, idol-worshipping pagans, we're all in the same soup. How do we get there? Whose fault is that? If that's where we all are, can I help it? Who's to blame? And you've told me because he does this in those first couple of chapters, go back and read them, you've told me that when people sin and God judges them rightly, that his character is demonstrated in his holiness, in his righteousness, in his judgment. If God's getting benefit from my sin, why am I getting the blame? these are the questions that have come up. And Paul says, if you're with me so far, maybe you're wondering about the answer to these questions. He says, so first of all, let me answer those for you. Let God be true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in your words, and might prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God... What shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? Now, before we get into this, I want to answer another question that might be in your minds. Not Paul's readers, but your minds. What difference does it make? This sermon is a little more theological than most of the ones that I preach. And some of you already think I am pretty theological. (laughs) So, So where are we going and why does it matter? And let me say at the outset, and this is the reason Paul addresses it, I think. How you think about God... How you understand the character and nature of God determines how you live every day. If you have in your mind a wrong idea of God, first of all, and it's somewhat academic, I suppose, but first of all, you're worshiping an idol. Because if the God in your head is not the God in this book, then you've got the wrong God that you're worshiping. So it's very important that that we get that straight. But even more than that, you might say, so what? Well, if you have a wrong understanding of God, the next time that phone rings and you get the message that some loved one is in the emergency room in in, in real trouble, it's going to determine what you do next. It's going to determine whether you draw close to God or get angry. It's going to determine how you pray. If you think God is responsible for your sin, it's going to determine what you do next time you're tempted. You know? Am I just stuck here in in something I can't help and there's no help for it? And God made me this way. So what? Or is there real help for my tendency towards sin? Is there a way out? And by the way, yes, thank you. And by the way, if when I sin, God gets held up as being righteous and holy, And he is glorified in his judgment. How come you're picking on me? I'm making God look good. I'm not kidding you. This is is the issue. And some people get lost in this theology. Okay, That's what Paul is addressing when he says, If through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? He picked on lying, but he could have picked any sin. If through my coveting, the the truth of God in his magnanimous giving spirit is magnified, why are you blaming me for coveting? If through my stealing, And God judges me for being a thief. And and his righteousness is upheld. And God's getting kudos out of this thing. I mean, how come you're picking on me? I'm just making God look good. Some people believe that God set this whole thing up so that when we sin, we magnify his holiness When we are judged, we magnify his righteousness. When we are saved, we magnify his graciousness. And God's doing all this stuff just to show off. Let me set the record straight, okay, biblically. God doesn't need you. I could stop there, I have more to say, but I could stop right there. God doesn't need you to make him look good. God is holy, whether or not we ever existed. God would hate sin if there had never been a single sin. God is righteous and a God of judgment and has the potential for wrath if there had never been a sinner. And God is loving and full of mercy and grace if there had never been a soul in need of salvation. God is God. He doesn't need you to show him off. He is who he is. So Paul says, don't don't get focused on that. If I tell you that when you sin... God's justice and judgment and wrath are magnified. Don't look at that backwards and say, okay, so I'm making God look good by my sin. No, God is who he is, and you're a sinner, and your sinner is illuminating some aspects of his character. But make no mistake, God says in his word, I take no pleasure in the punishment of the wicked. It does not make God feel good to be right. He he can't be anything other than right, but it does not make him feel good. And and it will not be a, a wonderful day for God when at the judgment, he sends the vast majority of people... Justly and righteously to hell because they have violated his character and his laws instinctively and deliberately. It will give him no pleasure. It will demonstrate his holiness, but it will give him no joy. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and the scripture says he is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. God takes no pleasure in the punishment of the guilty. Doesn't mean he's not going to do it. And it doesn't mean they're not going to experience the full manifestation of his wrath. Because he is God. And, and he is who he is. But you can't say, okay, so I, I'm down here sinning and I'm, and I'm showing off God's holiness. Paul says, what are you, nuts? Well, he, he didn't say it that way. He says, may it never be. <laughs> what are you thinking? How could you think that? That's not what I mean. Now, some other questions pop up in, in this context. Did God set this whole thing up? I, I mean, we're, we're in this mess of sin. Everybody's in this mess of sin. How do we get here? Well, let's go back to the Garden of Eden for a moment. Let's, let's go back to this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's go back to Adam and Eve and the fact that God gave them a choice. Okay, so now we're in the garden with Adam and Eve, and um, th- th- they have this option. There's this tree over here. You've got the whole forest to yourselves. You've got the whole garden to yourselves. But here's this one tree. I do not want you to eat of it. Some people say, You know what? If God hadn't put that tree there, and if God hadn't made that snake, we wouldn't be in this mess, so it's really God's fault i i mean god god, God set this whole thing up. It's his problem. yeah, I'm a sinner i I don't question that, but but I didn't choose to get here. You heard me say this before, but it's 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 real important that we understand this. In order to have a love relationship with this man and this woman, God had to give them an opportunity to say no to him. He had to give them that opportunity. Because otherwise, love would not be a choice, it would be programmed. And you've heard me say this before too, but you can't have a love relationship with your computer. Some of you do, I know. But you're warped. No. <laughs> and some of you have a love-hate relationship with your computer, and some of you want to boot it about once a week. But computers, believe it or not, only spit out what's in the program. I mean, they can't think, despite what Microsoft wants you to believe. You know, They learn your habits, okay, but that's part of the program. They can't think. They can't respond to you. And when they get old, you throw them in the garbage can, you get another one. You don't have a relationship with a computer. It's not a warm fuzzy. It's programmed. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a box. It's a tool. If Adam and Eve had had no choice, they would have been programmed. They, they would have just, I love you, God. Like your puppy meeting you at the door. You know, So what? It had to be because they wanted to. And in order to make it possible... To want to, they had to have the choice not to. And God gave them that choice because he put that tree in the garden of knowledge of good and evil. And he said, don't eat the fruit of that tree. You can have everything else, but don't eat that one. And and when you do, the day you do, you're going to die. I want you to love me because you want to love me, not because you have to. So there's your ticket. If you want to do your own thing, there's this tree here, but don't do it. Because you'll be leaving me and you're going to die. Is it God's fault that they did it? Let me help you out with some of this theology by telling you an illustration, okay? Because some of you are kind of looking at me like, where are we? Let's talk about teaching your teens how to drive. And if you haven't done that yet, well, it's quite an experience, but just imagine with me, okay? Your child is growing up, and they get to that age where it's time to learn to drive, and driving is a wonderful thing. How many of you would like to have walked to church this morning from wherever you live? (laughs) Isn't Isn't it fun to drive? Isn't it a great thing? Driving is a good thing. Driving can also be dangerous be very hazardous. So you, you send them to driver's Z, and you practice with them, and you take them out, and then you find out how dangerous it can be. And, and they sit beside, you know, you sit beside them, and, and you long for those brakes and steering wheels like the driver's Z people have. And you teach them how to drive, and, and they learn the rules of the road, and they got the whole system down, and finally the day comes, I can go get my driver's license, you know? And I remember those days with, with both of my guys, you know, and, and they got their driver's license, and it took them about 15 seconds after we got home to invent an errand that they just had to run. Can I use the car, Dad? You know, and, and, and what do you say? What do you say? <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> and you kind of reach forth the keys, you know, and about a minute and a half later, your kid says, Dad, you got to let go. <laughs> okay. Be careful. Remember, I got it, Dad. I got it down. But you've done everything you can to prepare them. And you've given them this opportunity to be free. They, they can go places. They can go to the store for you. They can go to the store for themselves. They, they, can, they can do it. But there's also great danger. And you've done everything you know to prepare them. Now let, let me ask you something: If they get in that car, and once they're out of sight, the next thought that comes in their mind is, "Wonder how much this thing will do." You know, and and they hit the accelerator and they're flying down Bearable Road at eighty miles an hour, and they miss the curve and they end off in the field, or they hit somebody and there's a tragic accident. Is that your fault? Are you guilty? You're not guilty, are you? No court of law is going to find you guilty. We know that. We just know that. That's intuitive to us. Some parents may feel guilty. It's false guilt. You're going to feel terrible. There's no way around that. But you are not responsible for their choice. They have made a choice. You gave them an opportunity. You explained the dangers. You explained the benefits. You gave them the instruction. Now it's time for them to drive, and if they make bad choices, it is not your fault. Friends, some people think God kind of set us up there in the garden because he made the opportunity to sin. To to create the potential for disaster, at the same time creating the potential for great blessing does not make you responsible for the choice that the other person makes. Adam and Eve were put there and given a choice, and God explained to them the risk, and he walked with them every day in the cool of the day to explain the benefits. God is not responsible for their choice. That's part of what Paul's getting at. Another thing that I don't think was in Paul's mind... But I'm going to touch on it anyway because somehow it's crept into the church in some interesting ways. We're going to talk about predestination and election in much greater depth in chapter 8 and chapters 9 through 11. But I just want to touch on it here. Some people actually think that God set up the system to fail in order that he could demonstrate all of these attributes of his character that he kind of programmed the fall as a part of his plan. And they confuse the foreknowledge of God with the predestination of God. Let me ask my driving illustration another way. Suppose that your young driver is now in day two or three, and they've been doing just perfectly well, They've, they've they've had no trouble, And you go in the garage and raise the hood, and you suck the brake fluid out of the master cylinder, and you jimmy the accelerator linkage so that it will stick open. And then you hand them the keys. And they go for a drive, and sure enough, they get out on the road, and they push down the accelerator, but they can't let it up. And the car's going faster and faster, and they try to hit the brakes, and there are no brakes. Are you responsible? Of course you are. You're guilty. You are guilty. We know these things intuitively, but when we come to theology, we get them all mixed up. God did not predestine Adam to sin. Come on. We instinctively know that someone who does that is horrible. In fact, that's what prompted John Wesley to say, Calvin's God is my devil. Because my devil tricks people into sinning, not my God. Now, he was being a little crass, frankly, and taking Calvin, you know, pinning him against the wall. And I'm not really trying to get into a debate on Arminianism and Calvinism this morning. I just want you to understand the character of God. God knew Adam was going to sin. He knew that he was going to have to send Jesus. Before he ever made an angel, he knew how the whole thing was going to work out. By definition, God can't learn anything because he knows everything, and he knows it all in advance. But his foreknowledge does not automatically imply his predetermination. Because if he predetermined the fall of Adam, then he is responsible. And there has to be a window where God in his infinite person, and if you try to get this all down in a neat little package, and cover all of the loose ends, friends, let me tell you something, you're not going to do it, because if you could do that, you would be God, and you're not God, and neither am I. You're not going to wrap this all up in some neat little system where every I is dotted to your satisfaction. There is mystery in God's infinity. There is mystery there. But God reveals his heart when he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I am long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. I want everyone to come to repentance and the knowledge of the truth. They're not all going to, but he wants them to. That's his heart. And that's the the, the heart of God. And when Adam and Eve sinned and and God showed up in the garden, yes, he knew it was coming, but it didn't change his gut-wrenching emotion and heart at the moment when he said, Adam, what have you done? Where are you? God wasn't looking for information. He had a broken heart. In real time and space, because the man he had made in his own image had turned his back on him and gone the other way. And Adam, though God had warned him, Adam really did not fully grasp the impact of that choice. Just like a kid that's driving a car 100 miles an hour cannot fathom what will happen if they hit the tree. I've been there. I've picked up the pieces in the rescue squad. It's not good. But the danger is clearly warned. And God in the moment, in time and space, is saying, Adam, I long for you. What have you done? Where have you gone? God knew where he was. Adam didn't know where he was. So Paul stops right before his summary in the middle of this whole exposition on the nature of sin. And he says, you may have some questions by now. And I want to answer them for you. Does God get glory when you sin and receive judgment? You bet he does. Is that why he's after it? What are you, crazy? That's not what he wants, but that is what happens. And if God gets glory when he judges a sinner, don't blame God for it. God has done nothing in human history but reveal his love and reveal his character. He didn't set you up. He didn't make you sin. He doesn't sit up there rubbing his hands saying, Oh, look how neatly everybody's showing off all of my attributes. Because he doesn't need you to do that. He is getting glory out of everything that's going on. And he will in the end be exalted as Lord God Almighty and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to to the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. Everyone will do that. But the heart of God is that you come out of this mess and find deliverance and salvation in Jesus Christ. So Paul pauses to explain the implications of all that he's had to say. And as we turn next week to verses 9 through 20, he's going to give us the grand summation of the human condition. And when he's done with that, we should clearly understand why we need a Savior who offers us salvation apart from works of righteousness, apart from deeds apart from human effort, through his blood atonement and by his grace, we should clearly understand it. And he's preparing us for that eventuality. Why do we need to think rightly about God? Because, friends, if you feel like God's setting you up every day of your life, you're going to have a hard time really coming to him when you're in trouble. And if you feel like you're in this mess and you know what, there's nothing I can do about it anyway. You're going to have a hard time dealing with temptation. And the next time you're in real trouble and you need a God who cares, you're going to wonder, is God involved in my life in a love relationship or am I a puppet on a string? And that makes a difference in how you live. And I'm here to tell you, God loves you. God is involved in your life. God cares about what's going on with you. We live in a fallen world. Tragedies happen. We get messed over sometimes, folks. Sometimes horrible things happen to us. That's why there's a heaven. That's why there's salvation. That's why there's a way out. But that doesn't mean God doesn't care about you in the moment. He's very much involved. And he will give you grace. And he will give you strength. And if he chooses not to fix it right on the spot, he will give you endurance until you see him in glory. When every tear is wiped away. And all the hurts are gone. And we're home at last. He is a good God. Father, thank you so much for your word to us this morning. Please minister to us in it. Help us to think rightly about you. To bow humbly before you at your wisdom and your astounding glory. To rightly fear your wrath. To understand your holiness. To bask in the joy of your grace. And to be glad this morning that we know Jesus. Because we are in a mess apart from him. And you have made it possible... For us to come out of it. To be delivered from its power and its penalty even now. And one day to be freed from the presence of all this evil. When we join you in glory. And we thank you for that. In the blessed name of Jesus. Amen.